This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, national parks are seeing the dramatic impacts of climate change, but it's something the Park Service has been working for decades to combat. Then, the changing physical and political landscape of the Arctic has lawmakers considering boosting the military's presence there. We'll talk about why that's easier said than done. And the U.S. wants to transform its relationship with African countries as Russia and China strengthen their influence in the region. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. Parts of Yellowstone National Park are still closed after historic flooding hit the park. In Yosemite, thousands-year-old trees were spared after a massive fire. Ray Savageau is the Associate Director of Natural Resource Stewardship and Science for the U.S. National Park Service. Ray, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So what's the mission of the Natural Resource Stewardship and Science Directorate? Well, our directorate um, follows directly with the mission of the National Park Service, of course, and the mission of the National Park Service is to protect resources in national parks unimpaired for enjoyment of current and future generations. And specifically within our programs under natural resources, we work to understand natural resources, to restore them, and to ensure that the resource values, and particularly the natural resource values, can persist um, and be available over time for people to enjoy both now and into the future. So the National Park Service has a climate change response strategy. Briefly tell us what's in that strategy. Um, Yes, so climate change, of course, is a significant issue that affects national parks all across the country and we have a strategy that has four key focus areas one of those is science understanding how climate change affects the resources in national parks so using scientific information to help frame our understanding of how climate change will have effects on national park resources the second is adaptation to use the information about our understanding of climate change to develop strategies to respond. What should we be doing to help our national parks um, adapt to or respond to the effects of climate change? A third focus area is what we call mitigation, and that is to ensure that our own activities are sustainable and are to the best of our ability helping to reduce the climate footprint of the activities of the national park system. And then finally, communication, a fourth focus area within our climate change response strategy. And that is essentially to use the national parks as windows to understanding climate change and to talk to people and stakeholders and public visitors and so forth about the effects of climate change on national parks and the ways in which we are um, both hoping to understand and working to understand and also then responding to and adapting to the effects of climate change. So, Ray, I mean, aside from strategy, which is definitely important, you know, these natural disasters are happening more often right now. 
So how is the Park Service adapting to that reality and protecting the parks from those disasters? Yes, well, um, of course, it's difficult to attribute a particular weather event as being the cause or being caused by or the consequence of climate change. But we know that recent weather events that have impacted national parks, such as high intensity storms or extended drought conditions, um, coastal flooding, for example, these are all predicted. They're all expected from what we would anticipate from a changing climate. And so it's imperative that the National Park Service recognize these threats, these risks, and understand how they are becoming more prevalent in order to protect resources. And so understanding vulnerability is key. So we're spending a lot of time now working to understand which of our resources are especially vulnerable to these effects. So conducting vulnerability analysis, focusing on the resources themselves, but also then coupling that with projections of the effects of climate change. So where are we gonna expect the effects of climate change to be most prevalent, to be of greatest concern, and then use that information to develop strategies to respond to climate change. And those strategies may be you know, how we are um, working to manage particular resources in parks. It may include things like how are we developing facilities and infrastructure that may serve visitors in national parks, but all of that recognizing the vulnerability of those assets and those resources and the projections that climate change um, uh, would create and affect national parks. All right, well, let's talk about those resources because the recently signed Inflation Reduction Act includes nearly a billion dollars for national parks. How will that money be used? Well, we are in the process now of working to understand exactly how those funds are going to be distributed. And so that is a topic of, of, of you know, lots of work and, and, and efforts now. The National Park Service in particular is especially interested in boosting the uh, work that we're doing around vulnerability analysis. We're very interested in um, uh, coupling uh, what are called downscale models of the effects of climate change on national parks and then using that information to apply it to adaptation, resilience, uh, the kinds of actions we need to take in order to protect resources and ensure that parks are available for future generations. The specifics of how those dollars are going to be allocated um, is, is a work in progress, but we're, we're, um, we're excited about the opportunity to have resources to really tackle these these challenges in national parks well speaking of challenge i i want you just to look ahead and tell me what's the greatest challenge do you think uh, is facing the national parks um with respect to climate change efforts one of the big challenges is is how we decide when intervention or action is necessary the national park service as you probably know we're, we we tend to be an agency that that um, takes a more hands-off approach in terms of how resources and how the natural environment operates. But when you have an effect like climate change, where the actions of humans are affecting what's going on in a national park, that then points to the, the importance of, of the National Park Service you know, doing as much as it can to try to mitigate or intervene in some way. But sometimes that becomes really difficult. And so we, we're struggling now and, and working hard to, to determine when are we in a position to resist changes that occur from climate change? And in some cases, maybe accept those changes. And then in other instances, maybe direct 
how those changes may affect resources. We're out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Coming up, the U.S. is working to strengthen its ties with African countries. But first, other countries are amping up their operations in the Arctic. Now lawmakers are proposing the U.S. do the same. Stay with us. In early August, Senator Lisa Murkowski introduced the Arctic Commitment Act. It calls for stepping up the U.S. military presence in the region and boosting investment in commerce and research. Ryan Burke is a professor of military and strategic studies at the U.S. Air Force Academy. Ryan, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So the proposed bill in Congress orders the Navy and Coast Guard to look into establishing a year-round presence in the Arctic. Do you think that's a good idea? Good idea. It's, it's a better idea said than actually done and executed. Reason being is because when you're actually in the Arctic and, and operating in the maritime environment, there's a handful of, of restrictions that simply can't be overcome by just saying we need to be there. We need, we need to actually think about this and deliberately make a better choice to go up there, but we need to look at the assets that are better suited by way of their capabilities to actually operate in the region. Okay, so in your op-ed, you actually talk about the military partnering with NOAA. Correct for the Arctic. How would that work? The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, I believe, is a underutilized federal partner in the Arctic. They, they currently pr perform a, quite a bit of the survey research that the Department of Defense uses to inform its own Arctic operations. And NOAA's Office of Marine and Aviation Operations has a fleet of 15 vessels, many of which, about a third of which, already operate in the Arctic as, as we talk today. They, six of them are ice-hardened hulls. The U.S. Navy has zero ice-hardened hulls. So NOAA's fleet of, of maritime vessels vessels can already operate and already does operate in the Arctic. Frankly, they are the more Arctic present of the maritime services than the Navy and the Coast Guard, at least currently, by way of underway legs and, and actual time days at sea in the Arctic. But, but their data collection and research, I mean, they're not a military presence. They're not, but they could be. So presence in, in strategic dialogue, presence equals influence, right? Presence, if we want to be influential in the Arctic, we need to actually be in the Arctic. And right now, the Navy has had a handful of sailings north of the Arctic Circle since 2018. Prior to that, they hadn't sailed north of the Arctic Circle since 1991. If we want to be influential in the Arctic, we have to have a physical presence. It, again, is easier said than done. And what I'm suggesting is that we should simply utilize an already present Arctic asset in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and utilize their, their vessels to enhance environmental intelligence, create domain awareness, and increase the decision superiority so we can create a, a better and safer and more secure Arctic environment for the United States. Well, you know, the Arctic has, had always been an area of international cooperation. The U.S. And, and Russia cooperated before. Why have attitudes changed now? So with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we... Which is a big one. It's a huge one. And let's, yeah. let's, not, let's not discount the significance of that, because right now, Russia is the chair of the Arctic Council. The Arctic Council is an international forum that has long presided over, since 1996, its establishment in 96, it has long presided over the Arctic as a region of what we refer to as exceptionalism, peace and stability. However, today, my opinion is, and I, this is shared by several others, is that the United States and the seven other Arctic or six other Arctic states that have removed dialogue with Russia since its invasion of Ukraine, we've done ourselves a disservice. We've only increased the instability or the potential for instability and conflict by 
severing ties, at least diplomatically, through dialogue and discussion with the one nation or the one state that is actively prosecuting an unfounded and unjust war, and it is an international belligerent. And now we have effectively removed all ties diplomatically with Russia in the Arctic by way of severing ties through the Arctic Council. We've only created a, a bigger chasm. Rather than engaging in more productive dialogue in a region that has long been exceptional and a, a zone of stability, we are now creating, again, a bigger rift between the West and Russia. Now, you know, there's talk, obviously, of Finland and Sweden joining NATO. Mm -hmm. They are um, within the Arctic Circle. Yes. How does that change things? If anything, we, we believe it'll happen, right? It's uh, We're waiting on a handful of other NATO states to, to sign the accession, but uh, we believe it'll happen. And if anything, it increases the NATO's posture by way of obviously creating a, strengthening the alliance, right? By bringing in two Arctic states that have Arctic territory, it creates more opportunities for the United States and other NATO allies to engage in more military exercises. And again, be more present within the Arctic, but in more established capacity. You know, in June, President Biden did uh, mention the potential for conflict in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. Is that a real possibility? It's always a real possibility, especially with uh, the way things are going right now. Uh, we can certainly tell that, uh, that the environment is changing, competition is increasing, and as we look through the competition to conflict continuum, we see indicators that we are progressing toward that. However, point being that I'd like to emphasize here is that operating in the Arctic is an extraordinary challenge. Whether you're talking about ships on the maritime domain or flying or, or frankly, even operating on the land domain or in the land domain, when negative 45 degrees hits your skin, you're going to go frostbitten in about five to 10 minutes without a wind chill. If you add any bit of a wind chill, you're looking at two, three, four minutes max. You simply can't sustain operations without an extraordinary training and extraordinary equipment. And so it's, again, it's easier said than done to actually conduct and, and prosecute operations in the Arctic for whatever purpose we decide we want to do that. So what does it actually look like? What do future military operations look like in the Arctic? We have a lot of strategies that the Department of Defense and the, and the respective services have brought out saying that the Army, as an example, wants to dominate the Arctic. I think it's, uh, frankly, uh, an unpalatable proposition because Russia dominates by way of its uh, landmass, right, more than 50 percent of the Arctic. It has more of a maritime presence than any other, any other country around the world. We simply can't do what we are saying we can do in the Arctic by way of these strategies, at least not right now. We need further investments. We need further training. We need further awareness of the Arctic domain, which is, again, circling back to the NOAA proposition, I believe that this is a, an underutilized federal asset that certainly can increase our environmental intelligence and our domain awareness toward these desired ends. And I know you're a, a military strategy professor, but I want to ask you, is diplomacy still possible as long as that war in Ukraine rages on? It's possible, but it requires a concerted effort among each of the Arctic states that has right now severed ties with Russia as a result of their invasion. I believe we can look at this more pragmatically and suspend suspend our ideology for a moment, suspend morality for a moment, and look at the look at the the situation in the Arctic and say, from a pragmatic standpoint, we collectively as Western states need to engage with Russia to maintain a positive dialogue and to deter conflict and prevent conflict from happening. Absent that, I believe we are headed toward, toward conflict in the Arctic. All right. Well, let's hope not. Ryan, thanks you so much for being on the program. Right. Thank you for having me. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the U.S. recently unveiled a strategy for transforming its relationship with African countries. We'll discuss the new approach. We'll be right back. During a trip to sub-Saharan Africa in early August, Secretary of State Tony Blinken 
unveiled a new strategy for engaging African states as partners. Mavemba Fezo Dezaleli is a senior fellow and director at the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mavembo, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mimi. So why is a new strategy necessary? The new strategy is necessary because the U.S. had tended to engage Africa on an ad hoc uh, manner. Uh, they've been at this strategy document in the past, but they've not fully informed uh, U.S.-Africa policy. What is uh, really needed now is for the U.S. to define a clear policy towards Africa so that uh, the engagement with Africa uh, is not driven by events or by other contingency. We look at this uh, new strategy as the foundation of such policy. That is, if it's fully implemented, it can serve as the foundation of that policy, which will lead uh, U.S. engagement in Africa in the 21st century. So what does the U.S. want from African states, and what do African countries want from the United States? Well, the U.S. is the biggest player on the international stage, and Africa is really the continent that is most critical for the world, uh, survival of the world. I'm talking about natural resources, mineral resources, climate change, Africa with its forests, but also the biggest resource that Africa offers, which is its youth. We will remember that the average, the median age in Africa is 19. The median age in Germany is 49. So just by looking at those demographics, Africa is a continent of about 1.4 billion people, and more than half of that population is under 19. So you can see there that the U.S., if it will continue to remain competitive, will need Africa on its side. And on the flip side, what does Africa want from the United States? Africa wants a consistent engagement with the United States, not an ad hoc uh, reactionary approach. At this point, if you read the news, you always hear about the Chinese and the Russians are in Africa. You go to Congress, you sit in on hearings. It's, this seems like the U.S. is always worried about these other uh, actors that's in Africa. What Africa needs from the U.S., is a definition of where the U.S. stands vis-a-vis Africa so that African then can engage, bring their own input in engaging with the United States. And how That's what has been missing. How influential are Russia and China in sub-Saharan Africa? Uh, the two countries have different level of influence. Uh, China, of course, has brought a lot of money into Africa, particularly in the space of infrastructure. Africa being a large continent needs roads, needs airports, needs money for all kinds of projects. China has been readily available in giving that money. It comes with some string, it comes with all kinds of conditions, but African leaders are readily happy to accept that funding. The U.S. does not do that much. The U.S. is mostly humanitarian aid and other, other contribution, but it's not always clear. For Russia, it's, most, it's mostly been on the defense and security. Africa is also home to several conflicts and several oppressive regimes. Those need help. And Russia is always happy to provide uh, hardware, aircraft, weapon system, and so on. So I want to ask you both about diplomacy and security. First, what steps does the State Department need to take in the short term to strengthen that U.S. relationship with African countries? 
I think in the short term, the U.S. is to make it clear that they want to be partners with Africans. And this is what the strategy document says. The strategy document really underscores the need for partnership with Africa, and Africans welcome that. The second key uh, portion of this strategy is African agency. Traditionally, the U.S. has not taken African seriously because the U.S. tend to go through former colonial powers to design whatever approach that they want to take on Africa. The fact that this document focuses on African strategy, I mean, African agency is actually a big departure from, for, from previous strategy documents. And what should the Defense Department be thinking about in terms of security cooperation? I think in terms of security cooperation, the, uh, our, the U.S. foreign security assistance need to be turned upside down. The U.S. has invested billions of dollars in security projects in places like the Sahel or the Horn of Africa, but that has not led to peace. So I think we need to start considering security, not just an arrangement between military to military and government to government, but as a service. If we look at security as a service, then the end users of security are the civilian populations. If that is the case, then the civilian population should be involved early on on the design of security programs and assistance program because they are the one who decide whether security is broken out or not. So far, we've seen rising communal violence, even the insurgent gaining ground all over the Sahel. That means that this, the structure and the design of the security assistance that the U.S. is giving these African countries inadequate. And, and just briefly, do you think Secretary Blinken's visit will change the status quo between the U.S. and African countries? The visit is a very good first step, a very important first step. The question will be how does the U.S. execute its strategy? The strategy is as good as the execution, the tactics that will come. If not, it will remain a very fine piece of literature. All right, Mavamba, thanks so much for being on the program. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable 
include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber, and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.